Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sometimes we need to be sad. Sadness is what we're supposed to feel after a loss. Sorrow is the sane response when sad things happen. So in a global pandemic, for example, it's normal. It's okay to feel sad. But I came to realize that many of us are so conditioned to be averse to these negative emotions that we don't recognize them, much less acknowledge or give ourselves permission to feel them and process them. Welcome to the new season of the Not Perfect Podcast. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, the author and founder of the award-winning app and best-selling book, Happy Not Perfect. This is our time to take a break and go within to unlock ourselves in a new way and stretch our thinking. Whatever you are going through right now, I welcome you into this conversation with a new inspiring thought leader each week to help us thrive, rise and realize our full truth and unlimited potential. As you might know, if you read my book, I'm passionate about us becoming flexible in our thinking. And that starts with some mind, body and soul healing. So let's dive in. I am absolutely thrilled to have someone I greatly look up to and absolutely adore her books on the show today. Today's guest is Helen Russell, a British journalist, happiness researcher and international bestseller author of The Year of Living Danishly, Leap Year, Gone Viking and The Atlas of Happiness. Helen was formerly the editor of MarieClaire.co.uk and has been a long-term writer for The Telegraph, The Observer, Stylist, Metro, Grazia, The Independent, amongst others. Today, we are going to be speaking about her new book, and I implore every single person to read this. It's called How to Be Sad. I saw this title a few months ago, and I thought this couldn't be a more relevant book for our show. Embracing our full emotional spectrum is not easy, but thankfully, Helen is here to share her wisdom and research about getting happier by being sad. What is a favorite quote you return to often and why? I think for me, the one thing I have really learned about being sad is that if you just do you, you're still likely to be sad. So it sounds like a cliche, but the old idea of if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion, as the Dalai Lama said, is something that I comes to mind quite regularly, I'd say. I really love that. We're going to dive into that in a bit more detail in a bit. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? The idea that many of us grew up with that, you know, what we don't talk about can't hurt us. I think I really flip that on its head a lot these days so that what we don't talk about can hurt us and we can get happier by learning to be sad better. It's something that so many of us are so ill-equipped to deal with, but makes such a difference. So that's one that I try to live by now. Really love that. And how do you understand the soul? This is a tricky one. I guess I always think of it in terms of when I speak to my kids, I have three young kids and how I raise them and how I 
try and give them a sense of self-esteem and self-worth. I guess I, I say to them that I, I love you because of you, not because of what you do, what you look like, what you say, because of the essence of you. So I guess mm. for me, it would be something around that, the essence of a person. Gosh, that is such a lovely thing to say. And also it reminds me of, you know, a lot of people tell you to, for example, not say to a little girl, oh, you look so pretty, all these kind of compliments that are so easy to give so quickly. But the idea of saying, oh, I love you because of you, or you're so wonderful because you are you, like what a lovely shift, feels so much more soulful. Yeah, and just the idea that we are enough without doing anything, we're already worthy. And that's your starting point. I really do think the next generation are going to be so, I hope they're going to be so different with far more conscious parenting because I feel that that idea of being enough just because you are you is actually quite new concept yeah definitely and I think in terms of of handling our emotions even many of us grew up with the you know being told if you fall over oh don't cry or don't be afraid of the dark but actually if we negate these emotions if we're told that what we're feeling is not what we're feeling then Mm. that can lead to a lot of shame you don't really trust your own emotions and yeah it can lead to these feelings of not being enough so yes I too am hopeful and um, yeah fingers crossed we are moving in the right direction here. So I really want to just celebrate this book again, because it is written in such a heartwarming way. And for anyone who gets scared of big books, this is the total opposite, because I immediately sunk into this within the first page. I was gripped because it feels so deeply human. You begin by saying sadness is normal. It's also inevitable. And you quote Desmond Tutu, who says, I'm sorry to say that suffering is not optional. And then you go on to say, anyone who says differently is selling something. And I just loved this beginning. Why did you write a book about sadness? And why did you want this message of sadness is normal to be so clear? Well, I came at it from professional and personal point of view. So I spent the past eight years before I wrote this book, researching into happiness worldwide. And I started to notice that many of the people I met back when we could do talks and travel around the world were so obsessed with the pursuit of happiness that they were phobic of feeling sad. And I would speak to people who had lost loved ones who would still ask like, how can I be happy? Or people who'd been made redundant or homeless or had a bad breakup who would still ask, so you know, why aren't I happy? And sometimes we need to be sad. Sadness is what we're supposed to feel after a loss. Sorrow is the sane response when sad things happen. So in a global pandemic, for example, it's normal. It's okay to feel sad. But I came to realize that many of us are so conditioned to be averse to these negative emotions that we don't recognize them, much less acknowledge or give ourselves permission to feel them and process them. And from a personal perspective, this struck a chord as well. My, my, my sister, I will share, died when I was growing up. She died of um, sudden infant death syndrome. And at that time in the early 80s, it just wasn't spoken about. And we were all expected to go on as normal, to slap a smile on our face. And, you know, I was expected to be this happy girl, this, this people-pleasing good girl, as many of us were. A therapist later said it was no surprise at all that I chose to dedicate my career to studying happiness because I too was so scared of being sad. So this just felt like a really interesting starting point because as you say, sadness is inevitable. It's going to happen sometimes in heartbreakingly awful ways, but in much of the world, we don't know how to handle it. And interestingly, when I started researching, I found out there are actually some really positive things about being sad that help us to be more human. So I wanted to explore that as well. 
Yeah, I loved how you said sadness helps us to remember that we need each other as a species. Yeah, and it totally does. I mean, we can all feel as though we are doing the things to make us happy in some way, but sadness is this sort of connecting, ruminating type of emotion. Even crying sends out a social signal. It's saying, I need some help here. We are soothed. Our cortisol levels are reduced because we are expressing this sadness. So the interconnectedness that many of us have lacked during the pandemic, that's all part of sadness. And we can't deny that. I think of it like um, pushing a beach ball underwater. It's going to pop up again somewhere. So we may as well learn how to handle it. I thought it was really interesting, the research you included in the book around how crying is often like misidentified. We think it's associated with sadness, but actually more associated with the idea of helplessness. Yes. Well, particularly in women. I mean, I think that's the the sort of striking thing for me, the idea that crying is so gendered still that by the age of around 10 and certainly 13, boys are told not to cry. They're told to reach for, say, anger from the shelf of emotions, whereas girls are told that it's okay to cry. But often, as you say, they are weeping out of feelings of helplessness or frustration or powerlessness. Mm. And when I think back personally, you know, the last few times I've cried, it has been that sort of, oh, just feeling of almost impotence, this idea that I can't do the thing that I feel like I should be doing or want to be doing. And helplessness as a cultural trope in women feels really problematic and something definitely worth exploring. So yes, I'm very grateful to the scientists studying tears these days. Yeah, I started to think back to the last times I've cried. And I suddenly thought, yeah, you're right. It hasn't really been about sadness it's been far more about that panic when you can't there's actually just nothing you know what to do next and it's kind of a way to process that helplessness I mean I love crying so I really enjoyed (laughs) that part of the book I'm sure everybody around me is like oh god she's crying again but in that way it is making you feel better because you are reducing your cortisol you are soothing yourself so actually even though it's not ideal and it would be great if we didn't feel helpless and we found a way to process these these emotions, perhaps be more assertive. Actually, you, your body is doing the thing that it knows it will take you down, will soothe you. Our bodies are smart. They're, they're figuring a way to help us. And again, you're very detailed on and looking at how emotions and gender are so delicately linked. But another part of the book I thought was fascinating was the the part about anger. And again, being very gendered, but also exploring that actually it's quite, it can be quite helpful to be good at anger. Yeah, anger gets things done, doesn't it? And there's a strong tradition of when women do break out of that box and embrace anger, they get stuff done. You know, look at the suffrage movement, look at um, Mm. any kind of protest movement. You'll probably see some women in there who've thought, I know culturally, societally, I'm not supposed to get angry. But when I do, things happen. We are all entitled to feel angry, but we don't have to vent. What we do with that anger is up to us. So we don't have to punch walls. We find a way through it. But I think the idea that we should all be allowed these emotions is really important. And again, it's something that psychologists are are working with young people now I spoke to a psychology professor who's working with female students now to just sort of say well you know you're allowed anger too that is part of the the scope of being human and something that we all have in us because if we're going to push it down again it's going to pop up somewhere and it can have some positive uses and also as you do in the book you explored that by suppressing sadness and anger and forcing this positive thinking, it doesn't actually work, does it? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Yes, so there's been studies going back since, since the 1980s, looking at the when we try not to think about something, or we can do it right now. If you try not to think about a white bear, then studies show that that thing will come to mind every second or so. And actually, it can backfire. So suppressing so-called negative emotions now has been proven time and again to backfire. We will think about that thing more. And you see that around you. If you're thinking, oh, I want to buy a new handbag, you'll start to notice handbags our mind will mm. will start to highlight that thing. And it's the same with, with so-called negative emotions. They will always be there. And yeah, although the fear of facing our sadness can feel overwhelming, the cost of not doing so is far greater. And the longer we wait to face it, the worse it will become. So yes, it's having to face it and sit with the sadness when it comes. And you do provide a number of different strategies to help people manage these emotions because I feel there's one step having this acceptance and allowing as as you said and all the benefits associated but also then it's like well how how do we do that yes and it can I completely appreciate it can feel overwhelming and incredibly daunting especially if we have been trained our whole life not to go there turning that juggernaut around takes some work the first thing after acceptance is just taking care of ourselves so avoiding excess and deprivation and then allowing ourselves the breadth of those feelings so getting angry as well as getting sad and then I think there's a lot that we can do around getting some perspective I always find very helpful so I started at one point I was on bed rest after years of infertility I will share I managed to get pregnant but I was I'm a small woman and I was on bed rest for for a couple of months and I started looking into the history of sadness which is fascinating and really finding out that you know as humans we've been through so much for so many years things are better now than they have been for for many of us but also we have endured tough times before and survived and even thrived and we will again and that's not to negate that sadness that's to just see it in a sort of overarching sweep of humanity for me personally books have always been a huge help there they are the ultimate exercise in empathy we're putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and brain scans show that when we read we're mentally rehearsing the activities and sights and sounds of stories stimulating our neural pathways we're getting a taste of of another way of living and and feeling almost a companion in our sadness and music can do that as well so there are lots of cultural tools that we can use you know listening to sad music when we're feeling sad can actually feel like a companion it doesn't make us feel even more depressed it makes us feel soothed in some way for me one of the biggest ones was was learning to talk about it you know as we're doing now as you do in your work it's opening up and, and breaking that silence and the shame around sadness and doing that in quite a constructed organized way so i call it the buddy system the idea of having a friend and having an agreement that when you're in trouble you'll get in touch and when you talk they'll listen without interruption and when they talk you'll listen without interruption and just having that go-to person that you agree you'll be there for each other to talk and especially over the last two years now when we haven't had those face-to-face connections it's really important to reach out in that way I don't know about you but I feel as though the phone phobia that many of us already Mm, experienced has got so much worse don't you think so actually even though it's pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone it's enduring these little discomforts that will help us to deal with the big sadnesses it is so true I have a friend and I absolutely adore her she called me last week couldn't pick up I looked at this call I was like I will I will you know what I'm gonna call her tomorrow and I have to almost rev myself up for a phone call these days it's so strange how that has happened 
it's so strange. And also you, I'm a lot older than you, but I think maybe even 10 years older than me, there is not that problem. Mm. It is, it is kind of 1980s onwards kids who have now had a lot of their adult life with technology that this fear of, of speaking on the phone or this, when we're used to being able to compose our messages, actually fear of the telephone has been around for as long as there's been a, the telephone. It's just massively exacerbated in, in these generations and since the pandemic. But I think that's something else in terms of almost exposure therapy where we're mm. making ourselves do that thing that's just a little bit daunting that will help us long-term. And also, I love your point about talking to someone without interruption. And I know this is also mentioned in your brilliant book about how, you know, the art of listening without needing to fix, because there is a compulsion when you're talking to someone, especially if you're, you know, just sharing your sadness for them to be like, what about this? What about this? They want to do anything to remove you from your sadness. And it's maybe, maybe not that helpful. It's really interesting that, yes. And I think I am a terrible one for it. It's taken me a lot of work and a lot of time to overcome that compulsion to just think, oh, well, you just do this and I'll have it sorted and fine. But I guess there's two things there. There's firstly that it, it's not going to help them. They they sometimes just need to talk. We all just need to talk without having a sort of relentless positivity or um, minimizing our concerns by saying, oh, you know, it's fine because there's worse things happen at sea. So when I talk about getting some perspective, I, I don't mean saying, well, at least it's not the plague, for example. And then yeah, the second yeah, thing yeah, is, yeah. it's that discomfort again, isn't it? It's that often when we are trying to fix it to make the person we're with feel better, what we're actually doing is trying to make ourselves feel better because it's it's uncomfortable seeing someone you love in pain mm. or having those awkward conversations, but we have to have them. So sitting with that uncomfortable silence is something that we also have to practice in small doses and get used to until it feels okay. Yes, and that point on comparison, comparing sadness is something I'm seeing more and more and it is leading people to feel that they then don't deserve to be sad in comparison to someone else's pain. Why is it so important to embrace our sadness and to try to remove away from thinking, oh, well, so-and-so went through so much worse, so I can't possibly be sad? Yeah, that's a big one during the pandemic as well, isn't it? I think um, there is no hierarchy of sadness. We all get to feel all of our feelings and pain is still pain, however privileged. Because if we are not doing that, Firstly, the sadness is going to come at some point. We can't push it away indefinitely and it will come back with greater force. And secondly, again, if just like with children, if we're saying don't be afraid of the dark or don't cry, we are introducing shame to the equation. So then as well as feeling sad, we're feeling shame that we shouldn't be feeling sad when other people have it worse. You're allowed to have compassion for other people whilst experiencing your own sadness. And shame is another thing that's so gendered, I think, for women, there are feelings of not being good enough in the workplace or not being the perfect mother or not hitting the milestones that people expect of women. And then for men, the shame is almost a greater problem still. It's this idea of shame linked to even the expressing of any emotions. So if we're going to have equality, we have to make it equality for everyone. And it has to be that we are all allowed all of our emotions and traditionally masculine norms and the idea that a masculine identity conflicts with having emotions is really problematic. So when I speak to people about this now, I almost sort of say, well, you're, if you're not doing it for yourself, you're doing it for other people. You need to not feel shame about 
feeling sad or you you have to understand that your sadness is legitimate because otherwise you are setting an impossible precedent for for everyone else as well I love that idea of you know allowing emotions is liberating other people that feels so lovely and it, and it shouldn't have to be that way but for many of us who've been trained to um, to people please in that way it's a short-term hack to get us to be able to handle our own emotions in a more healthy way yeah and you include Carl Jung's quote saying shame is a soul-eating emotion do you have any kind of other words of wisdom to be able to meet shame and shake it a little I think airing it is helpful because it's never as shocking as we perhaps think it is I always used to think of it as like a backpack with big bricks in it and then I was speaking to a friend yesterday in fact and she coincidentally said yeah mine's a big backpack with really big rocks in it I said oh mine too (laughs) so just the idea that every time we we talk about it if we uh, you know Queen Brené Brown says that the antidote to shame is vulnerability and I do think that if we every time we we are able to talk about our shame to somebody we trust a safe space then it, it lessens slightly and then I think for Brits as well it's so tied up with apologizing and apologizing for feeling even mm. so that's something that we can do every time we feel ourselves about to say oh sorry and I've had people who've who've said sorry when they've had to leave early because they have been unwell or a so, friend got knocked off his bike and he said sorry to the person who knocked him off the bike I mean it's just so habitual yeah. and of course we should apologize when we've done something wrong but we shouldn't apologize for feeling so if you feel that that word forming on our lips you can take a box breath you can you know, breathe in for four hold for four out for four hold for four again and, and it's enough time to just break that pattern a little bit but it's not easy I, I would stress that none of it is an easy quick fix but it's certainly worth it I've got some really exciting news. My podcast partners, Platinum CBD, have decided to offer the chance for Not Perfect listeners to try their CBD for free. So all you need to do is pay for shipping. Super easy. So if you want to try Platinum CBD for free to help you sleep, manage stress or sore muscles, then all you have to do is visit coal-care.uk. And the link will be in the show notes too. And choose between a 10 milliliter CBD oil in peppermint or unflavored or the CBD soft gel capsules. Add it to your basket and at checkout, add the code NOTPERFECTFREE. Get your free CBD while stocks last. I was fascinated and also it made very much made sense for me because I very much relate to this research. But you write about how there is a natural dip in happiness between the ages of 25 to 40, and there's more clarity as to why that is. Would you mind speaking a bit more towards that? Yes, I think this is fascinating. So yes, it's this U-shaped curve and um, and the loss of happiness yeah, between 25 to 40 is, is apparently equivalent to a third of the effect of involuntary redundancy. And researchers used to think that this was because of the pressures of midlife or when we perhaps have caring responsibilities towards children, towards parents in all directions, maybe the pressures of a whopping mortgage. But actually researchers have found the same trend plays out in the animal kingdom. And it's not because monkeys have massive mortgages. It's more now, the idea is, to do with the fact that when we are young, we have fewer resources. We need uh, natural levels of, of happiness, you could say, to get us through, to keep us going. When we are 
out of our, our midlife period, and actually this is thought to go until the end of our 40s now, I think peak misery is around 47. So that's a treat <laughs> I have to look forward to. But um, yeah, when we come out of our 50s, the idea is that we perhaps have our priorities more straight. We focus on the things that really matter, like family, like friends. We are less in that sort of rat race or chasing big bananas as our, our monkey ancestors and, and cousins will be doing. So it's more the idea that we focus on what matters towards the end of our life. So while we may not think that we'd be giddy to be coming to the end of our lives, actually, if we are focusing on what matters and what ultimately will bring us more happiness, then that could be why we start going up in the U-shaped curve. But yes, time will tell. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I'm shocked to read that chimpanzees also have this dip in happiness because I can totally see how lifestyle, environmental and the pressure of all these decisions around family and life partner. And, you know, as you said, like mortgages that just, you know, suddenly in my early 20s self seems totally problem free compared to all the things you've got to think about as you get a little bit older. But I wonder if it's anything to do with you're more likely to partner with someone if everybody just and do you want to mean appropriate? I'm not sure if like evolutionary psychology has anything to do with that. Oh, what? So you mean that you're more likely to procreate? If you feel a bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> there is amazing research to show that actually, you know, parents tend to be less happy than non-parents, except if you're in Portugal, where the family all rallies around and helps you with it. So I think it's, it's sort of accepted now that the idea that children brings you a great sense of purpose sometimes and, and meaning without wanting to be pro-natalist, if, if that's something that you choose. And of course, childlessness not by choice is, is another kind of area of disenfranchised grief. But mm. I think there are yeah certainly those midlife struggles. But interestingly, during the pandemic, things have shifted slightly. So it might be that this research will be due a rethink if when we are all out of this, because actually the boomer generation, them again, they have fed fairly well in the pandemic. Their, their happiness levels have not dipped too much, whereas wow. young people have found it more challenging. The social isolation has been more challenging. And women, interestingly, who normally have more friends, typically socialize more, so have felt the loss of that connection more keenly during the pandemic. So it'll be fascinating to see, yes, what the outcome is long term of the last couple of years. Yeah, that will be very interesting. I'm dying to talk to you about the culture of happiness and I know you've touched on it but I again a part of this book that I was just underlining going yes 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 I've got so many slightly issues and bugs to bear with it is especially the American dream this huge pressure of some societies that like happiness should be on a pedestal and to your point you met so many people in the pursuit of happiness why do you think and where does this research come from? What are the social factors that are contributing to this pressure to be happy all the time? Yes, Americans are outliers in their desire to avoid sadness and pursue happiness at all costs. And one theory as to why, uh, Jeannie Tsai from Stanford University has, has put it down to perhaps the first settlers from Europe who were a self-selecting, intrepid group, people who anticipated positive outcomes and handled negative feelings or situations by leaving them in the hope of something better. Because in that environment, wallowing in adverse circumstances was not going to be a virtue if you're a pioneer. So today, the American approach is still very forward facing. Interestingly, in America, CBT is still the most, most popular form of therapy, whereas European therapy tends to be a little more Freud 
blame your father, look backwards. <laughs> and, you know, I think also there's a big commercial aspect to it. The American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Medical Disorders, the DSM for short, that is a hugely influential book that's intended to help practitioners in the US diagnose depression, where depression is apparent. And depression is a chronic mental illness that needs help, but sadness, short-term sadness, it's a temporary emotion that can be awakening. It can be a message is my theory on this. And I've had both. So I feel like I know of once I speak. So the DSM in America, interestingly, they tend to focus on symptoms rather than context. So the distinction between an actual medical issue and ordinary sorrow isn't so much there. It used to be that you couldn't be diagnosed with depression within two months of bereavement because it was just accepted that you were grieving, you know, you were sad, you'd lost a loved one. But the latest version of this DSM, which was published in 2013, it did away with this distinction. So actually, there's much more of a, of a look at the symptoms rather than what might be the cause. Mm. And so now there's much more of a movement in people who aren't keen on this idea of thinking, well, what's what's happened to you? Not what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you? What have you mm. been through? So, for example, during the pandemic, we, we've all been through so much. It makes sense that collectively there, there are these feelings of great sadness and loss and melancholy and mourning and living losses as, as well as grief for many. And I think culturally in the US, people are not that equipped for that. And same in the UK, there's a real hangover from, from the war where you know Winston Churchill, he never said keep calm and carry on, but that, that spirit is hugely associated with this idea that actually to get through a war, people just had to keep going. And there were no outlets for, for the grief, so people just cracked on. And then you look at the boomer generation born after that, typically raised by that wartime generation. And suddenly you're seeing this prioritizing of self-esteem, the idea of protecting the ego. But interestingly, it was striving for happy. So you're allowed to feel, but you should feel happy. Mm. So follow that trickle down effect that the children of the boomer generation, me among them, there was this idea of well, you know, don't be sad, don't be sad, just don't cry, up you get, um, don't be afraid of the dark, from the best of intentions, because they had been raised by this other wartime generation. But it it all filters down and, and impacts on where we are now. So in the US and the UK, I think we've been massively influenced by pioneer values, and again, the Second World War, whereas if you look at perhaps East Asian culture, there is much more of an idea of nuance that you can be happy and sad all at the same time. There's more of a granularity of emotions that I think we could all learn from. It's so interesting when you compare cultures because it shows how a collective culture can influence our behavior at such a micro level so significantly. How does depression correlate to whether a society embraces sadness or not? Well, interestingly, there's there's fascinating comparisons between Japan and the US, and they're good countries to compare because both are wealthy, both have well-developed health systems. And in Japan, psychiatrists will say that for all of the problems that you know every country has, and, and Japan has issues with work-life balance and, and many other things, but psychologists there will say it never occurred to us that we should medicate away sadness or melancholy or grief because wow. it never occurred to us that that was a problem. And if you look at this idea that many of us will read about in lifestyle magazines that, you know, happier people are healthier. And it's certainly a phrase that I've used myself in my former life. Well, actually, if you look at the data that gives us this trope, 
It's largely from the US where people who are less happy tend to have higher BMIs, less healthy blood lipid profiles, which is a good indicator of well-being and health. But in Japan, if you are not happy, it has no impact on your health because there is no value judgment placed on not being happy. So mm. the, the scientists and the researchers have concluded that actually being sad only makes you sick if you're terrified of being sad. Wow. You can be healthy and not happy that week in Japan and you'll be fine. So it does have a massive, massive impact the way we are we are approaching it. And again, the the American psychiatrics, you know, the DSM, they have this questionnaire for depression and there are nine key symptoms that someone has to have five of for a two week period to achieve a diagnosis, they call it. But someone else could have four different symptoms with just one in common and they both leave with the same diagnosis. And the guy who came up with this system admitted that it was arbitrary which I just think is so staggering. It's something that we base so much of our treatment for mental health around, and it was arbitrary. So it's an inexact science, and all of the best geneticists and neuroscientists and psychologists I spoke to around the world all agreed that the brain is as hard as it gets, that nobody knows for sure, which is not very reassuring when you are having a tough time, but that this is the best system that people have for now. But it's not without its problems. We've just got it totally and utterly upside down don't we it's a tricky one yeah it is it's like the very thing we want by wanting it we kind of don't have and by you know trying to run away from the thing we think we don't want we end up getting more of what a contradiction absolutely and I think as well the kind of the social inequality that has really you can see that that wealth gap widening during the pandemic that also leads to sadness and mental health problems and even to addiction as we are trying to maintain self-esteem and status in an ever more unequal society, it's very stressful. So can again lead to increased desire to feel better via a crutch of some kind, whether it's our smartphone or alcohol or shopping, whatever it might be. So it's, there's a lot to unpick. <laughs> there's a lot to unpick. And I think for me, no country's doing this perfectly, but in some respects, the, the Scandinavian approach to equality makes a big difference here. And I think I see that playing out and being quite helpful when I compare it to, you know, my life in London, for example. You touch upon how self-esteem and sadness relate to each other. And I'd love to talk further about that. What do you mean by self-esteem and how does comparison interact with self-esteem? Like, why is it that inequality would affect our self-esteem? I think it's this idea that, you know, John Berger has been talking about this since the 1970s, this idea of advertising takes something from us and sells it back to us for the cost of the product. And this idea that inequality is the idea is that we feel less than we were because we don't have as much as someone else. And you see this even in a neighborhood, for example, where somebody is a millionaire. If down the street, people are not millionaires, if they're struggling to put food on the table, the millionaire will be less happy as well because of that inequality, because of the anxiety attached to that. Mm. Whereas, for example, in Scandinavia, there is much more of an idea that everybody pays these eye-watering taxes that really are quite eye-watering. But you don't have to have that constant level of anxiety that your neighbor's going to rob you to put food on the table. You don't have to worry that you're not going to be able to put food on your own table because mm. the state largely has that sorted. So you almost have the headspace to be happy more because you're not anxious all the time. And I think trust and happiness is such a huge, in the Venn diagram, such a huge crossover 
that if you trust the people around you, they tend to behave better, that trust becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you just have the headspace to be happy, to be less anxious. If you are living somewhere where most people are taking care of you, you can live with a little more of a, a clear conscience, I think. And then also expectations play into this. And you write, which I really related to, your story of when you were little, watching Disney, having these expectations. Of course, you know, this then leads to that and this then leads to that. And then when it doesn't, this rising disappointment. Yes. So when I was little, um, I swallowed the Disney manual whole. I watched a <laughs> lot of television and my my parents split up and my dad remarried. And I fully thought I would get to be a bridesmaid, probably with a tiara, probably <laughs> riding my own pony. This did not happen, listener. And I was absolutely devastated. And, you know, you sort of, you see on television this glossy life and especially growing up in the 80s and 90s. We're talking sort of Dallas dynasty. I wasn't watching that as a five-year-old, but, you know, you still got the idea where everybody had very big hair, very lovely, beautiful, symmetrical matte faces. They lived glossy, shiny lives. I live, grew up in an area where my family didn't have any money. It was just me and my mum, but the people around me did. And the childminder would pick me up in her white Porsche and drive back to the house with a swimming pool. And that wasn't my experience of life at all. Yes, it's it's a weird one. And of course... People work hard for their success and they should enjoy it. But I think we have to look after everyone a little bit more than perhaps people are used to. And this idea of expectation, I think I grew up at a time when you were supposed to aim high, you were supposed to aim for the top. And if you weren't, you weren't really doing it right. And perfectionism was the one acceptable flaw you could state on your CV or in your (laughs) job interview. And actually, you know, you've talked about it before as well. Perfectionism is, is such a trap. It's actually a health risk. So I think we have to really do some rewiring and do some reevaluating, which is hard when it's everything we've grown up with. I think that's really challenging for, for people. And also you do obviously mention, and I think it's hard not to um, in the book, you know, Instagram takes that Disney manual and puts it on steroids. Yeah. And I think it's a really hard one because you'll see a lot about, um, you know, we all have to take personal responsibility and you just have to shut off the app. And, and of course that is the ideal but there are so many very, very clever people spending mm. millions and working all of the hours that there are to try and keep our eyeballs there. So it's mm. a really unfair fight between us and addictions to social media, for example. I think the only thing I kind of do now, and I use everything in my resilience toolkit to keep my mental and physical health intact, but I have the timer. So it tells me when I've been on Instagram for 30 minutes each day and everything shuts down after I think it's 9 PM. And and then it's a real pain for me to try and get back into everything. And the phone goes on airplane mode for at least 12 hours a day, but it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. What is the fallacy of arrival that you write about? So I love this. This was a game changer for me. So Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, who was a Harvard uh, psychologist, he, he ran the most popular course on happiness there. He came to the conclusion, really, that when we are when we have a goal, when we're working towards something, we're often convinced that when we get there, then we'll be happy. When we reach that destination, it's sometimes known as summit syndrome as well. When we mm-hmm. to get to the top of that mountain, then we'll be happy. Then our real life will start. And actually, when we get there, we feel often nothing. We feel a huge sense of anticlimax. And this makes sense. You know, we are programmed to enjoy the thrill of the chase. That is when the dopamine rises. And when we get there, it drops off. We, we don't get anything then. 
And yet so much of our life is structured in this way. And it doesn't just have to be career goals. I spoke to mountaineers and um, endurance athletes and Arctic explorer who told me once when he he worked for about 10 years to get to the South Pole and he got there and he said, it just looked a bit shoddy. Which I loved. <laughs> but this idea that it can be anything it can be the idea of becoming a parent, especially with the way the media portrays it. And again, the kind of the Hollywood version of parenthood, where it's just going to be Disney birds on your shoulder tweeting all day. Mm. Even being in a long term relationship, we can have unrealistic expectations. And if they are goals that are either completely born from the life we see around us, if they're extrinsic, or even if they are just influenced by media pressure or parental pressure, then we are more likely to feel that sense of anticlimax afterwards. So if they are intrinsic, if they're things that we really want, we really want to paint a picture because, or write a book because we love to write, then it's less likely, but we can still feel those. So and I was staggered by the fact that actually all I'd wanted forever was was to have a baby and to write a book. And then I did those things and life was not perfect. And I was very grateful that I had both of those things, but I wasn't fixed. Things weren't done. It, my story mm. didn't end there with the credits rolling. And yeah. just really accepting that it, there is a lot more nuance there and it's a lot more complicated. And if we're doing things for parental approval or external validation or for money, we are likely to get a real slump afterwards. It's not going to make us happy. I just think it's so reassuring to almost hear that so many other people, like the traveller who got to the South Pole and was like, oh, this is it. Yeah. I think it's just so reassuring because actually, since you know, reading about it actually makes me make decisions in a different way, knowing that this is more of a thing. It's not just oh, a problem with me or just a problem with the individual. Yes. And that's been so moving about doing all of this work and this research. I think in my previous books, I had always had a great correspondence from readers and I loved going to events and speaking to people and talking. And it often was around joy and happiness and different cultural concepts. And for this book, the correspondence that I've had is just so moving. Every day I am reminded, of course, that we are not alone and that we are all in this together, at least we should be. And of the interconnectedness, really, of, of all of us. And that's, yeah, really heartening after the couple of years that we've had. Another myth that you break in this book for me, which I was like, oh, this is so interesting, is one of my favorite chapters, which is Get Even Mind. <laughs> and um, so many people have, you know, quoted the research around, well, you just need to do 10,000 hours and then, you know, you can be an expert. And it gives me a feeling of like relentlessness, like, oh my God, like I've got so many more hours to do. And actually you share a little known fact about this research that it's not just about all the hours you put in, but also sleep is a bit of a factor. Yes, me too. It was a super interesting one for me. And I, there was a lot of sort of speechlessness on, on the phone when I was interviewing about this one. <laughs> so yes, we all get the idea that to be really good at something, we have to work on it for 10,000 hours as popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers. But actually that was based on research by a Swedish psychologist who studies violinists at the Berlin Academy of Music. And he found that yes, although the best players did practice very intensely for 10,000 hours, they also slept more. 
Now, that sleep part of the research, interestingly, was not picked up by the media because Mm. we prioritise activity over inactivity in our society. Rest is not valued in our society. And it's not even rest, it's what passes as rest, because actually that's the time that our, you know, our neurons are restoring us. We're, We're getting back to factory settings. We are getting ready to fight another day. And, you know, you hear the list of great inventions that people came up with in their dreams, like Paul McCartney's Yesterday, I think even the sewing machine was created in a dream in someone's sleep. So this idea that to be successful, to be happy, we are going to need to rest. We can eat all the kale in the world. We can do all of the spin classes. But if we are really stressed and we're not resting, it's not going to happen. We're not going to be good, sad, that helpful sadness where we sit with it, where if we can allow for this temporary sadness, we have greater attention to detail. We're more perseverant. We have more generosity. We're more grateful for what we've got. We're more clear eyed. If we're not resting, we don't get any of that and we're not happy. So that just felt like a big piece of the puzzle. And again, growing up in this culture of go, 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 aim high, the idea of rest as not a nice to have, but a crucial to kind of solidify all that you have done and learned felt really important. It was quite a game changer. Again, so deeply reassuring. And if that doesn't invite you and encourage you to prioritize your rest, especially during the holiday season and into early next year when it's getting a bit cold, I don't know what does. Research has proven it helps an awful lot. Thank you so much, Helen, for this wonderful interview. Oh, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.